Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, finna build here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters, that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general, King Khalid Muhammad. We gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the black police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, bullshit, I don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die. NBPP.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous service unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
So welcome to the first public lecture of the academic year here at the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. My name is Yan Hsieh, and I am the acting director um, of the center this year. So for our first lecture, Professor Olufemi Taiwo will deliver a lecture titled Reconsidering Reparations. And in his lecture, Professor Taiwo will make a novel connection between the case for reparations and the issue of climate justice. So before I introduce Professor Taiwo, I'd like to take a moment to introduce Professor Jim Stock. Professor Stock is Errol Hutchings Burbank Professor of Political Economy in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and a member of the faculty at the Harvard Kennedy School. And he also was recently appointed Vice Provost for Climate and Sustainability here at Harvard. And so we thought it would be a great start to our first public lecture to ask him to share his vision for Harvard on the topic of climate change. Professor Stock. Okay, thanks so much, and thanks for uh, inviting me. Look, I don't want to take a lot of time away from Femi's really interesting talk today, but I will just say a few words. So first about my background. Yeah, I started at the Kennedy School, and now I'm in the economics department uh, as well with the joint appointment. Um, since having the climate, economic, the climate and uh, energy portfolio in the White House uh, eight years or so ago, when I was a member of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, my research has focused on climate economics and especially developing practical and durable climate policy. We already see some of the impacts of climate change around us. Those impacts include the effect of sea level rise on coastal communities, heat waves, wildfires exacerbated by the mega drought in the American West, increasingly intense rainfalls and more. These impacts and those of the energy transition already fall most heavily on many of the communities that are least able to afford them. In some cases, communities already suffering from a legacy of proximity to fossil fuel pollution. But the effects of climate change we're seeing now aren't the new normal. The new normal is that these changes will be getting worse. In his letter on climate change engagement at Harvard last month, President Bacow wrote, that Harvard must stand among world leaders in addressing this challenge. I guess it's my job to uh, make that happen. Fortunately, here at Harvard, we already have many pockets of strength in the climate area and deep expertise. That's it, there's a lot more that we can and must do. As a university, it's our job to develop ideas, ideas that matter. Frankly, we as a nation and globally haven't been making nearly the progress on reducing greenhouse gas emissions that we need to, and new ideas are badly needed. It's also our job to educate. Here too, we have a, a, quite a few excellent courses in climate and related areas, but demand far outstrips supply. We need to amp up teaching, not just in the science of climate change, but in business relations, environmental justice, public policy, public health, and other realms, and I plan to help make that happen. So there's a lot to do. Fortunately, in my conversations with faculty, students, and alumni so far, there's a great deal of enthusiasm for Harvard rising to the occasion and the, to the level that it needs to rise to in this area. So I look forward to engaging with all of you in the future. And I also uh, look, forward to, uh, look forward to getting some of this talk this afternoon. Professor um, Stock, thank you very much, and I'm very much looking forward to engaging with you on the issue of, of climate change. Um, so with that, let me introduce Professor Olufemi Taiwo. Um, Olufemi Taiwo is an assistant professor of philosophy at Georgetown University. Uh, he completed his PhD at the University of California, Los Angeles, and before that, he, uh, 
completed BAs in both philosophy and political science at Indiana University. His theater, theoretical work draws liberally from German transcendental philosophy, contemporary philosophy of language, contemporary social science, histories of activism and activist thinkers, and the black radical tradition. He's currently writing a book entitled Reconsidering Reparations that considers this argument of connecting reparations and the case for environmental justice. He's also committed to public engagement and is publishing articles in popular outputs with general readership, such as Slate and Pacific Standard, that explores the intersections between climate justice and colonialism. And before I turn it over to Professor Tywood to make this novel connection between reparations and climate justice, I'd like to remind all of you to use the chat function in Zoom to enter questions that you would like to pose to Professor Taiwo, and please feel free to enter those questions during the context of his lecture, so we may turn immediately uh, to the Q&A. So with that, uh, Professor Taiwo, I'm very much looking forward um, to hearing the connection between climate change and the case for reparations. Thanks a lot to uh, Professor Shea, Professor Stock, um, to uh, Emily Bromley and all the people at Stafford Center who made this happen. Um, I'm very uh, delighted to be here. Um, I would also uh, thank and shout out um, Divest Harvard. I think it's fair to say it took uh, tireless organizing work to move things along to the point where Harvard has now um, announced divestment. That's it's very good. That's the kind of thing that you need to succeed on a large scale. If we want climate justice or racial justice, as I'll go on to argue, so um, shout out to all the above. Here's what I think. This is what this talk is about. Um, this talk is uh, an adaptation from a book that I recently finished, which is um, publishing soon, which just makes this argument, which is that reparations requires climate justice and that that means remaking the world. And if nothing else, if I don't accomplish anything else in this talk, I just hope I can accomplish getting across that I mean this literally. When I say remaking the world, I'm not talking about changing people's attitudes about the world. I'm not talking about changing the way that we think about the world. I'm talking about the physical things, the actual institutions and infrastructures that we have that govern, direct, and organize life as we know it on this planet, human life and life in general. So that's the thing that we need to remake. That's the thing that climate justice calls us to remake, and it's the thing that racial justice calls us to remake. Another way of saying what I just said is to explain this broad perspective on what the world is, um, that I'm calling global racial empire for the purposes of this particular argument, but it is largely in agreement with a um, body of literature that has been developing over the past few decades that goes under the heading of racial capitalism, the term racial capitalism. Um, but broadly, um, the claim about racial capitalism that I'd like to make about this global political and social order that we have is just the broad set of claims on the right which is that the global social structure that has resulted from transatlantic slavery and colonialism, which you could call global racial empire or you could call racial capitalism, um, can be understood as a set of processes that constitute a distributive system. So 
So advantages accumulate in the global north, racially dominant communities, and uh, that second bullet point should say disadvantages accumulate in the global south, racially disadvantaged communities. So things like knowledge, political power, um, environmental security accumulate in the global north and among um, white people, racially advantaged communities, and disadvantages like toxins, like violence, like housing insecurity tend to accumulate in the global south and in racially disadvantaged communities. And that holds both within and across political communities. Um, there is a broad volume. You could fill libraries with the various kinds of studies and the various social sciences that taken together imply something like this or that I take to imply something like this. I'm happy to talk about in the Q&A, um, but for now, I'll just make it aware, I make you all aware that this is a claim. The second chapter of my book goes into some of that social science detail and argues for looking at the world in this way, but this is the perspective that I'm taking. So another way to say what that means for our purposes today is that the world, what the world is on this view is a production and distribution system. Racial injustice then accordingly is about how things are distributed, things like security, um, so insecurity or security with respect to housing, food, energy, water, environment, things like political power, resources, money, and changing those distributions is the way that I'm thinking of racial justice. So if transatlantic slavery and colonialism built the racist world order, if it is the thing, the set of historical events that explains why all of those aforementioned things are distributed in the way that they are, and the processes that we would have to interrupt or change in order for them to be distributed somehow else, then the proper task of reparations, I'm arguing, is no smaller, is to rebuild the world. And this view is not as ascendant as it once was, but Adam Getachew's book, World Making After Empire, argues that the world of the 60s and uh, the post-Second World War anti-colonial movement in which much of Asia and Africa um, had successful national independence struggles, began with this recognition. It was actually um, something of a consensus view or at least a plurality view amongst the global activists against that form of anti-racism and anti-colonialism. So I'm less thinking of a new thing and more trying to cheerlead for an old consensus in um, anti-racist, anti-colonial struggles. So in order to argue that we should look at reparations in this way, as opposed to other ways, um, it's helpful to point out what the other ways are that people do look at reparations and give some reasons, try to persuade people to look at reparations in this way that is more constructive. Indeed, I call it the constructive view. In service of that, I've put together three 
standards for evaluating reparations arguments in something like lexical order. So the first standard is the most important, second standard is second most important, and third standard is least important. The first, I argue, is that reparations for global racial empires should make tangible differences in the material conditions of people's lives. Um, we are responding to the moral urgency of present day suffering and not simply the fact of past injustice and evil. Um, and this is part and parcel of what we should want out of reparations. Um, but nevertheless, two, reparations for global racial empire should address the core moral wrongs of transatlantic slavery and colonialism to the extent possible. Um, I add that last caveat because unfortunately many of the people um, who were most directly harmed by things like the transatlantic slave trade are of course um, people who have passed away who are ancestors now. And so there are kinds of redress that are no longer possible because uh, people die and pass on. Um, but to the extent that the actual constituent events, the acts of enslavement, the acts of family disruption, the, app, the acts of taking land and territory can be remedied. This is also a desideratum for reparations views. Um, a reparations view that can do that is a valuable one. And finally, number three, reparations for global racial empire should discriminate. The way that they distribute benefits and burdens should be based on the different relationships of persons and institutions to the core moral wrong. The present day inheritors of the wrongdoers should get more of the burdens, perhaps all of the burdens, depending on your view of reparations, and the present-day inheritors of the wronged should get all the benefits or most of the benefits, again, depending on your view. Now, with these in mind, we can look at two categories of reparations arguments that I think much of the present-day academic literature tends to gravitate towards, um, but not exclusively the academic literature, of course. Um, but nevertheless, ones that I think um, we can improve upon. So first, harm repair. On the harm repair interpretation of reparations, the point of reparations is to repair present harms to individuals or groups that are caused or constituted by past harm. These views work on welfarist motivations and also a conception of harm that matches. So welfarist motivations are trying to make present day people, for example, the uh, descendants of um, African Americans who were enslaved. Um, they're trying to make them better off, um, more wealthy or have better income or have better housing or less incarceration, things of that nature. Um, so the motivations are welfarist and accordingly the way that harm is thought about is also welfarist so the kind of commitments to what harm is and when we see it um, that match things like tort law or injury law and accordingly a lot of the arguments in academic literature that make these sorts of arguments come out of law reviews um, there are particularly difficult conceptual questions in reconciling this conception of harm with the kind of time scale that we're talking about when it comes to reparations. Um, I actually have 
um, a few slides prepared about that that I talk about when I talk about this chapter in particular. Um, I'm happy to go through them at the end um, or um, in, sorry, I'm happy to go through them in Q&A. Um, but for now, I'm just going to note that there is something many philosophers have called the non-identity problem or the conceptual worry, um, the counterfactual worry that plagues harm repair arguments. Um, but for now, I'll content myself to apply the standards. I think harm repair arguments tend to do well on standards one and three um, because they're welfareist in motivation. Um, what they are about is making tangible differences in the material conditions of people's lives. So they do well on standard one and they discriminate. They certainly do discriminate. They um, pick some people out as plaintiffs and other people out as uh, defendants or analogous positions to those. Um, and so they apportion benefits and burdens in ways that match people's moral intuitions. Nevertheless, uh, I think they fail on standard two. And the reason why they fail on standard two is intimately connected to the contention that I started with, that the other side of transatlantic slavery and colonialism isn't just wrong people in the world, but actually a world is generating the political and social system that we have um, with a fair degree of breadth and depth, right? It is, it is uh, how we got this overall social system. So the harm repair theorists would have to argue that we would be changing the kind of social system we have by redistributing um, wealth in particular countries or regions in the way that they're arguing for. And I, I don't see that as being the necessary upshot of harm repair arguments, at least not of harm repair arguments as such. So I don't think they do quite as well on standard number two. Partially because of that thorny counterfactual worry or the non-identity problem that I identified earlier, some theorists have opted for this second category of style of argument for reparations that I've taken to calling relationship repair. On this view, what reparations is for is repairing damage to relationships between groups um, where those relations have been um, damaged by past wrongdoing. There are a couple variants of this. Um, again, something I'm happy to, happy to return to in Q&A if need be, um, but they come down to differences in the ways that we could categorize the relationship between um, the different groups of citizens perhaps, or between the affected citizen and their government. Um, what is it that's going wrong because of these past moral injustices? Maybe, we have a kind of debtor-creditor relationship where um, the present-day inheritors of yesterday's moral wrongs or the claim rights generated by yesterday's moral wrongs um, are owed something, right? They've inherited this moral debt. And so the way that the relationship is fixed by reparations is simply the way that a debtor-creditor relationship is fixed. Um, you owe me a debt. We have a kind of broken relationship until you pay that debt. And once we do, that makes the possibility for maybe more peaceable relationships or even more broadly moral relationships. The other argument strategy 
in this heading is moral repair that just focuses on the normative aspects of relationships um, from the first instance. On this view, the point of reparations is to um, is primarily expressive and communicative, as um, Shauna Schifrin, when such theorist, puts it. Um, so the idea is to repudiate the past and to communicate the intentions for non-repetition of the harm, for jointly held and jointly used moral and normative expectations, and so on and so forth. So we're trying to reset the normative underpinnings of a relationship between two groups of citizens or between an affected group of citizens and government, uh, between the affected group of citizens and a corporation, whatever the cases may be. So, excuse me. Um, one objection is that this changes the subject. Um, as Coleman Hughes once put it, uh, black people don't need another apology. We need safer neighborhoods and better schools. So you can hear the underlying welfareist kind of contentions and commitments from underlying this objection. Um, harm repair theorists and relationship repair theorists have often duped it out, um, as well as um, people like Reed and Hughes who object to the whole project of reparations whole cloth. Regardless of whether or not that objection is successful, I think that the relationship repair view doesn't do a good job of the first two criteria. Um, it's unclear what the tangible differences in the material conditions of people's lives would, um, would be. It's unclear which differences would be made by the kinds of things that would communicate um, differences in moral opinion with the past villains of the transatlantic slave trade or attendant global colonial domination. Um, if the core moral wrong is the construction of a whole political field, um, a whole political system, a construction of a world, as I'm putting it, um, again, it's not clear what communicative or expressive disagreements with past decisions would do in and of itself to reconstitute the world. Um, I think people who have um, maybe less materialist commitments than I do might well disagree with how well the relationship repair view does on these first two. If you think that the world is uh, strongly ideologically constructed, or that the ways that we think about political reality feed back strongly into distributions of income, distributions of political opportunity, then you may come down differently than I have. I'm just flagging that um, so that we can talk about it in Q&A if people are interested. Um, but it does well on the third criterion. It asks for apologies for some people and for um, other people to receive apologies. So it, has a good way of discriminating. The view that I prefer is this, the constructive view. Um, what reparations is about on this view is a political project to create the just world tomorrow. And it looks backwards, looks to the past to decide how the benefits and burdens of that project, that construction project should be distributed. 
So it's a constructive view, not really a repair view. It's not that we're trying to undo something that has been done in the past, but we're trying to do something in the future in a way that is mindful of the past. Accordingly, um, the view on justice that fits this is the aforementioned distributive approach rather than, say, retributive justice um, as maybe is befitting the harm repair approach. Um, some people have suggested to me that this is itself a relationship repair view. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to call it a material relationship repair view. I don't think much hangs on this distinction. Um, but what is worth noting is the division of theoretical labor that informs the constructive view. So forward-looking considerations, the kind of considerations that might be the topic of ideal theory, those can help us identify a target state of affairs. Um, but transitioning from this unjust world to that target state of affairs is going to require benefits and burdens that are about the particular kinds of troubles and challenges that we have in this world as presently constituted and as presently constituted by past injustices. So if we want to transition from this unjust world to a just world in a way that is itself just, backward-looking considerations can help us do that. The people who have been enriched by past injustice might have more lifting to do when it comes to getting us to this different, hopefully better world. Now, even my preferred view, um, much as I would like it to be otherwise, does not do well on all of these criteria. Um, in particular, it doesn't do well on the third criterion. Um, if the constructive view asks us to remake the entire world, it asks us to do something that is very difficult to contain the positive results of. If we achieve climate justice for everybody, then the descendants of the enslaved and enslavers alike are going to benefit from the achievement of that goal. Um, and if we're going to do that, we may need to um, less than totally distribute the burdens of that process towards those who have um, benefited from past injustice. It may be that everybody is required to do something, even if not everyone is required to put in the same amount of effort or give up the same amount of resources or so on and so forth. So my view doesn't discriminate nearly as well as the other two views do. Um, so the ranking of these standards, the kind of order in which I put them is um, a load-bearing aspect of the argument that I put forward. So um, just identifying that um, help people challenge me or um, have questions or whatever. So we have the three views. Um, we have the view that I'm trying to push for. But maybe we only have two views of reparations. So one objection that uh, I fielded a lot is that it's not even clear that the constructive view is a reparations view at all. Reparations views are supposed to be backward looking. They're supposed to be responses to past injustice. But if I'm saying that we should achieve justice in the future, that's a goal that we could achieve whether or not it was true that transatlantic slavery and colonialism had built this present world. We could just want justice. 
Um, so distributed justice accounts are forward-looking in this particular sense. Um, my response is that this division is artificial if you are talking about changing from a present state of the world to a future potentially just state of the world. What that present state of the world is, is the accumulated result of social processes. So if the view of distributive justice that we have takes this into account, if it is a historical or processual view of distributive justice, um, Nozick is the famous person who has a view like this, but there are, but there are others. Um, but if we have such a view of distributive justice, then what it would be to achieve a just future state of the world would involve a trajectory starting from injustice and reaching justice and would be um, thus backward looking in at least that kind of sense. So I think the artificial distinction between um, forward looking and backward looking accounts of which um, forms of political orders are just is unhelpful to thinking about reparations and to categorizing which views are properly reparations views. The last thing, but in some ways perhaps the most important thing I want to say about the constructive view is the kind of additional theoretical architecture I've added to um, flesh out what it is that we would be distributing to make a just world. So there are resources to views of uh, distributive justice that think the focal variable for distributive justice should be something like income or perhaps wealth. Um, there are resources views that are not so narrowly economically focused. Uh, Rawlsian primary goods gives us a good example of that. And obviously all of these are onto something. Um, but I actually prefer the way of thinking about it advanced by Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum, the capabilities view. So for them, what's important about our political structures are what they allow people to do. Um, capabilities are just capacities to achieve functionings, which are states of being, like the state of being well-fed. You can decide not to eat um, and thus decide not to achieve the functioning of uh, the state of being well-fed. Um, but if food is available, then you have the capability of being well-fed. And maybe that's the kind of thing we should be paying attention to politically. Why this matters, I think, is that it changes the focal variables within distributive justice from things like resources, which of course the resources use prefer, to things like affordances. Um, so here I'm taking cues from disability justice scholarship, um, for example, the um, scholarship on the concept of universal design. Um, but if you want to make the world less ableist, not the world as in the way that people think about the world, though certainly we would want to change people from having um, ableist viewpoints to the extent that we can reason people out of these perspectives. Um, but if you really want to make the world accessible to people, um, you could distribute the idea that ramps are important, or you could just build some, right? Or you could distribute the idea that um, closed captioning should be provided, or you could just provide it as um, the um, people hosting this talk have fully done, right? Those things are affordances 
for a variety of reasons I'm happy to talk about in Q&A. I don't think they're very well represented as resources, um, but they are built aspects of the social system that we can directly intervene upon um, before waiting it for anybody to change their minds about things. And I will just flag for the moment that some of these affordances are directly related to governance. So if you build a participatory budgeting system or a lotocracy or forms of political de decision-making by sortition, you directly change what kinds of things people have the political power to affect in their lives. You add political affordances to your governance system. And those are the kinds of things that we should be thinking about if we're trying to achieve a just world, rather than just um, income distributions and so on and so forth, which we certainly should include as important targets of political intervention. So the targets are self-determination as uh, referenced on that political slide, or sorry, on the previous slide. Um, we should want people to be able to interact with each other on terms of equality. Um, this is an argument famously made by Elizabeth Anderson. Elizabeth Anderson made it in the context of a nation state, um, but I'm thinking about this internationally for reasons that I've gone over. Um, these are design objectives. These are things that our social system, as a system, um, these are principles that would be built into our system as a system and not just moral principles for the way that we think about the system or the way that we criticize our system or um, the kind of ideals that we communicate about our system. Um, we should be making it literally true about how the social system operates that people can self-determine. And that is, I think, just a restatement of the capabilities view. Um, in terms of self-determination, which is a political value that has a long history and currency in the anti-colonial movement. I think these are just identical as far as I can tell. So here's where we get to climate. If we think about what is needed are affordances and capabilities, um, and we see the kinds of challenges being raised by the climate crisis, um, we see the kinds of problems for which resources views of distributive justice are, I think, um, particularly poorly equipped to handle. Right? Um, if you have the money to afford um, the right kind of education, but your school is burned to the ground or underwater, or there are heat waves that prevent students from safely walking to school, then it is of little consequence that they have the supposedly requisite resource, or to put it another way, they do not have the supposedly requisite resources despite having what might otherwise seem like a just distribution of income or a sufficient distribution of income. So how do we protect the precarious gains of previous racial justice struggles in a world that is three or four degrees warmer? How we can expect the near future world to respond to the political developments of the um, accumulations from 1492 to present is on terms of what some people are calling climate apartheid or 
um, what I've called climate colonialism. I don't think you need to argue about which term to use. I think they're primarily the same thing. So we can expect a new kind of social division and distributive justice problems between um, within countries and communities, between those individuals and families who can pay to avoid the worst impacts of climate crisis and those who can't. And we can make that same insight with um, social groups of different sizes. So the, there will be differences in the abilities of whole nations or indigenous nations, indigenous communities to deal with climate crisis. Um, and the differences between those who can afford to deal with these problems and those who cannot will increasingly structure the kinds of political divides and divisions that we get in the near future. So we have a large planet size system to change. Part of what we need to change is ecological, part of what we need to change is political, and part of it is cultural. Um, how do we change all these things on a literally planetary scale? Well, to recall, um, this whole talk I've been using this distributive approach. So I'm thinking of racial justice and injustice in terms of how things are distributed, things like security, political power, um, including resources and money, but not limited to resources and money. So climate reparations would be um, in outside of the abstract land of theory and into the real world 2021 set of policy disagreements, it would be uh, more program than a policy. So generally, it would be an achievement of climate policy in all of the relevant areas. If the burdens were to be distributed towards the global north and the racially advantaged population and the benefits of all of these things distributed towards the global south and black and indigenous populations, that would cut across the going categories of climate policy. Um, if you have done some reading in that area, you recognize these terms from there. Mitigation, adaptation, loss and damage, resettlement, carbon removal. Um, and if you've done some reading in these areas, you're probably also aware that the exact opposite is happening. The countries that are putting more than their fair share of effort towards mitigation and adaptation are often countries towards the most disadvantaged um, side or the disadvantaged pole of all of the countries in our global system of geopolitics. And large rich nations are doing less than their fair share. So in what little time that remains to me, I'm just going to go through a few concrete policy ideas that I think fit the constructive view ethos, just to, give, just to flesh out a little bit um, what the upshot of this view is. Um, and then I will be happy to talk with you all about any of the things that I've said over the past few minutes. Um, but first and foremost, is the good old unconditional cash transfer. I think this is the policy instrument people think of when they think of reparations, particularly with harm repair theorists who I earlier criticized, but I think they're just entirely correct 
on this particular aspect of things. This is the gold standard of reparations discussions for a reason. Just giving people checks is an extremely direct way to change who has claim rights on the benefits and burdens of social cooperation. Um, it's a great idea. If we do nothing else, we should do this. Um, there have been a lot of objections to this, some stemming from um, a general concern with uh, cultures of dependence or something like that, some more technocratic, some thinking that it will be inflationary. Um, there are some objections that kind of straddle the middle of the technocratic and cultural critic. Um, there are some people who think unconditional crash transfers, just mailing checks to everybody will be vulnerable to one form of capture or other, perhaps by landlords who immediately raise the rents, perhaps by monopolies, perhaps by um, the business owners who, for whom recipients of reparations checks are consumers. Um, I think there are real things worth worrying about in these objections, but they're not the sort of objections that are knocked down. In particular, I think uh, Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen's pro recent proposal to have trust funds dispersed over time and its administrative, appar administrative apparatus um, checking in on all these things, the National Reparations Board, I think that's an extremely um, well thought out proposal and I think we should just do it. Great idea. Immigration justice. Uh, the status quo is warehousing refugees in much of the world. The status quo used to be resettlement policy. Um, we should go back to that and we should greatly liberalize borders um, asymmetrically. So particularly for south to north migration. Um, there's lots to say there, but perhaps I'll leave it for Q&A. Participatory budgeting, this gets back to the kind of practical affordances that give people direct decision-making power over their economic life. Um, we can bring public funds under public control. So in 1988, after 20 years of military dictatorship, the Brazilian Workers' Party in Porto Alegre um, brought a majority of the municipal funds of the city under public control, under direct public control. So there were something like town hall meetings where people decided what the money should be used for. Um, and they did that and, and they um, gave people direct kind of power over these things. Um, that is something that has been adopted by many cities. Very few have committed um, even a fraction as much funding as the Brazilian Workers' Party did. Um, Seville, Spain, for example, from 2005 to 2009, contributed some 4% of city funds to participatory budgeting processes. And that was uh, on the higher end for the time. Right? So a far cry from the Brazilian Workers' Party. Uh, one exception being the state of Kerala in India, which um, where uh, a left democratic um, alliance 
of leftist parties is um, a powerful political force there. Um, it's gameable. The political ecology matters. It matters what kinds of community organizations there are and um, what the prevailing civil society organizations say about such things and to what extent they make themselves part of the process. But I think this is something that we should look into. Um, energy democracy or community control over power. Um, private fossil fuel companies, if you ask me, should not exist. Why do we have those? We have those, they're going to continue to have problems. Um, but community ownership of power is another way forward. Rather than having investor-owned utilities um, who externalize the environmental costs of their profit-seeking, often by dumping pollution on marginalized communities. Um, we can make people decide or put people in the driver's seat of deciding how power is going to be provided. Um, and we can empower people to be able to do that with renewable energy and renewable resources. Um, one more thing to mention, bargaining for the common good. This is actually an approach to workers organizing. It's an approach where organized labor includes community members and organizations in the generation of contract demands and the campaign to win them. Um, labor unions played large roles in desegregation. Um, and there's a long US labor history, especially amongst public sector workers, uh, using worker power for broader social goals. And that's something we've started to see in the last decade with teachers unions and several locals of the SEIU um, in the United States. And it's something that I think also has the possible upside and upshot of increasing people's self-determination. It's also the kind of affordance that can change the power dynamics of a social system. I'm not going to explain any of these. I'm just going to rattle them off for potential common Q&A. Um, we could be here a long time. Um, I wish I had revisited this after the Pandora papers were released. Um, I'd have a few more bullet points to say under tax haven reform, but um, fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty speaks for itself. Green climate funds, a fund by which rich countries can pay money into green development of poorer countries, reforming tax havens, restructuring trade policy. All of these hopefully just give you a flavor of how literally I mean when I say that this is that remaking the world is what's required for climate justice and racial justice. And this stuff, not just checks to particular people, is the stuff of reparations. So again, if I've, if I've said anything over the past half hour or so, hopefully I've said this. Reparations requires climate justice, and that means literally remaking the world. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Ty. Will everybody please join me? Although we can't hear the clapping, I'm gonna. We're gonna...
clap, clap on behalf of the audience. Thank you very much. Um, we have about 10 minutes for Q&A. So what I thought I would do is uh, read from some of the questions um, that have been submitted during the talk. And the first one I think will be helpful, which is, um, I'm curious as to whether your view takes the demands of climate justice and those of reparations to be properly coextensive. I imagine you don't think it's merely contingently true that the global South is owed reparations and is also most directly burdened by climate change. But I'd love to hear your thoughts spilled out a little bit more on the connection in between the two. Um, I think that's right. So I don't just think it's contingently true that um, the Global South is owed reparations and that they are um, most vulnerable to um, the downsides of climate crisis. Um, my view of what it comes to that they're most vulnerable to the downside of climate crisis is a view on which um, the social structure um, that we that we've inherited from historical processes, which is itself an accumulation of power and resources and money, um, that is, if not decisive, um, at least a large um, causal input into who is vulnerable to what, right? So everyone was vulnerable to COVID qua virus because we're all the kinds of creatures that can catch the COVID, um, that can contract COVID from um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, but not all countries were um, by dint of their place in the global system of production and distribution, equally vulnerable. Some countries um, had a large formal sector, a large tax base with which they could uh, pay people to um, stay home. Some countries could um, had substantial credit ratings with which they could borrow. Um, some countries, some organizations, some people um, some people were essential workers, some people were you know, essential workers, some people were um, given the opportunity to stay at home and work. Um, and all of those things are contingent results of the particular way that our social system has developed. Um, and so they show up in response to a supposedly novel crisis. Um, in ways that look like it's about, that look like it's bad luck if you're ignoring the history that explains why vaccine production is over there, is possible over there, but impossible over here, and so on and so forth. Um, and the climate crisis is, um, case in point, something that was produced by the Industrial Revolution, which was itself produced by transatlantic slavery and colonialism. And the things that render populations most vulnerable to the effects of the climate crisis are of that same kind that I just explained with uh, the vaccine. Okay. Great. Um, here's a question uh, that, that um, relates to your um, third standard for, for an account. It says, uh, could you say more why your constructive distributive justice um, doesn't fully meet your third standard? I felt that it could with the right balance of backward and forward approach as distributive justice on the base of disabilities or other injustices which repeat in every generation. 
Um, it seems very different to injustice on the basis of theft, which is what reparations are for. You know, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting point. I don't think I don't think it's true. Let me put it this way. I think it would be possible to design a kind of um, political program around the constructive view that um, that succeeded at standard three. So you could decide which affordances to build and where to build them, right? So for example, you could um, exclusively take up climate adaptation projects in the global south and in um, front line racially marginalized communities in the global north, right? And that would be um, discriminatory in perhaps the right sense um, and um, thus maybe it would fulfill standard three. Um, so th yeah, that is a good point. I don't think it's conceptually impossible, um, but I think a harm repair view qua harm repair view succeeds at standard one, right? And a relationship repair view qua relationship repair view succeeds at standard three. Um, and it's only, I think, contingently possible that the, con that the constructive view could succeed at standard three. So I think, you know, if I had been more careful, I would have put it that way. Um, so I, I take the point. Um, so sort of continuing on that line of how to be sort of discriminating, I think this is sort of a combination of two questions, which is I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts about how this approach towards reparations applies to environmental justice communities that are a mix of both immigrants, refugees who have escaped their home country, say, for example, in Central and South America, to the U.S. imperialism, as well as African-Americans who are descendants of those who are enslaved, and then sort of continuing on that with another question, which is, um, since the present world was created by many different types of injustices, and not just racial domination, could there also be reparations for, say, gender injustice, where the cost is paid by men and the benefits to women and gender non-conforming persons on a constructive view? Or maybe the international multiracial working class is owed reparations, or can reparations be owed only to peoples or ethno-racial groups? So those are sort of two questions about how um, extensive, in some sense, uh, is, is, is the constructive approach. Yeah, and there are two interestingly related questions, you know, maybe um, on maybe thinking about different scales, scales or starting from different scales. Um, so maybe I'll start with the second one. But broadly, when I, what I want to say about both of them is that, yes, you could you could think of a politics around reparations that could respond in different ways to these kinds of challenges. Um, and maybe we should. Um, so taking the case of um, gender, for example. Um, I don't think, I don't think there's any reason why we couldn't have um, the kind of reparatory politics um, for gender. And, and there has, you know, this is a, this is, is an idea that has been um, floated to some extent. Um, and on the constructive view, what reparations comes to um, is maybe most dramatic in terms of some people get checks and some people don't, right? Which is kind of the more colloquial, more uh, commonplace thinking about what reparations is. Um, but all it comes to on the particular view that I've um, identified here is on purpose, 
distributing the benefits and burdens in targeted ways that track past injustices. And we could certainly do that, right? We could build spaces um, where, um, and or presumptively for non-men, or we could build institutions that um, dealt in compensatory ways for, um, with non-men as a response to the past history of gender injustice. Um, and I don't see any particular reason not to do that. Um, by that same token, you could have um, a number of uh, heterogeneous policy approaches in a kind of mixed community, right? So maybe there's a set amount of funding that comes in for a community where um, some people are the descendants of American slavery and some people are um, immigrants from some place that has been affected by US empire, um, Haiti, for example. Maybe one group of those people gets checks, the former, um, but maybe the whole community gets um, climate adaptation work. The whole community gets um, um, better water management systems, for example. Um, that kind of thing is not only um, compatible with the constructive view, I think that's the kind of central case of the constructive view. Right? Um, we, we all live together in some sense of together. There's only the one planet, um, but we all have these different relationships to the vast array of injustices that built the modern world. And that is not only okay, but that fact is usable in designing just ways to change the world. Great. Um, we are now at time, and I'm sorry we couldn't get to all the questions, um, but uh, I hope maybe people will be able to have a chance to read your book and then respond um, as well. So once again, everybody, please join me in thanking Professor Taiwo for an incredibly stimulating talk. And um, please do look at our newsletters and our website for future events. And we very much look forward to seeing you at the next public event. Once again, thank you very much. the moral cost, the psychic cost, the racial trauma embedded and inscribed on our genes is real and calculable. We live in a society that has been saturated with racism and the scars of racism, the scars of racial brutality. So on that, we are in complete agreement. But there's more to be said. I'm doing pretty well. And the question is, right now, should our polity try to funnel resources to me as opposed to somebody, let's say, whose folks swam across the Rio Grande 10 years ago? Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. And today's debate, we're looking at the question of reparations for the legacy of slavery and how that can be done and whether it should be done in the form of restitution using direct cash payments. Now, in South Africa, the government paid $85 million directly to the victims of apartheid. Germany paid $89 billion to survivors of the Holocaust. The nation of Colombia, after a decades-long war, gave victims $23 billion. But in the United States, the idea of using cash payments 
to partially, at least, redress the wrong incurred by more than 200 years of slavery on North American soil has long been seen as an outlier idea, way outside the mainstream, until now, this moment we're in. We have a senior Biden advisor reportedly saying that the White House will start moving on reparations for the sin of slavery now. And Congress is again discussing a commission to study how such reparations could be done and also whether cash transfers could and should be part of it. Some say this movement is long overdue, that reparations are important to begin addressing the moral injury that slavery inflicted. Others say there is no way that this can work, that direct payments to African-Americans could divide the community, could exaggerate racial tensions and prove impossible to administer, while also doing little to address the deeper legacies of slavery. So in the context both of this history and also in this current climate where the issue is definitely moving up the agenda, we've decided to debate the question of reparations, or at least one slice of it. We're going to be looking at this question of whether checks for the recipients are the way to go. We're doing it in our agree-to-disagree format, in which it's more of a conversation among people who disagree on part of the issue, but allows for lots of room for agreement, because it's that kind of issue that requires nuance. I want to welcome our two debaters to the conversation. First, Randall Kennedy, who is a law professor and also a previous debater at Intelligence Squared. So I want to say, Randall Kennedy, thanks so much for joining us again at Intelligence Squared. Thank you. And our second panelist is Cornell William Brooks, a lawyer and former NAACP CEO and president, and now a professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Cornell William Brooks, welcome to Intelligence Squared. It's good to be with you. So as I said, we, we want to have a, a, a nuanced conversation, recognizing that there's a lot that the two of you will agree upon. It, it, this is not one of those zero-sum debates where we've done in the past where we've taken on issues like ban college football, zero-sum, yes or no. We're really looking at reparations and how they can be implemented as opposed to whether they should be implemented in the broad sense. But at this narrow specific issue of whether the example of South Africa paying cash and Germany paying cash is one that will work in the context of redressing uh, the wrong of American slavery. So uh, I'll start with you, Cornell, on the question of whether direct payments to African-Americans would be among the most effective means of addressing the legacy of slavery. What is your position on that? My position is that reparations, as in reparatory justice, including restitution and cash payments, is absolutely necessary to address the racial wealth gap, but also the moral recognition gap of slavery, neo-slavery, and the ongoing effects of America's past in the present. Thank you. And Randall Kennedy, your thoughts on the same question. I am not an enemy of reparations, but I have deep concerns about it. Uh, one, the opportunity cost. I think it's highly implausible that this campaign for reparations is going to succeed, and I'm worried about the time and energy that's going to go into a futile movement. Second, there are the administrative difficulties. And third, there's the, and most importantly, the question of need. I want people to get what they need, no matter what were the origins of that need. All right. Thank you. So it's really clear where the two of you disagree on this particular issue. I, I think it would be useful to get a sense of where you agree at the outset. So in the sense of the need for the call for reparations, in a sense, being reflecting a correct diagnosis 
of the issue. In other words, recognition of the wrong. The, the two of you are not in any way disputing the notion of the wrong having been committed, um, wounds having been inflicted, the wounds being long lasting. You both agree that that's the reality, I, I, I would assume. I'll, I'll ask you to go first with that, Cornell. Uh, if we think about the fact that human uh, chattel, capital, uh, as in the sl- enslaved Africans, uh, essentially laid the foundation for America to become an economic uh, superpower. The small town that I'm from in the low country of South Carolina in the 1700s uh, was one of the wealthiest corners of the U.S. as a consequence of the cultivation of rice uh, by Africans. Uh, cotton uh, literally increased by 400 percent in in the main uh, in the majority of the uh, 1800s. Uh, of course, cultivated by Africans providing the wealth base for this country. And when we think about the fact that slavery literally created the economic foundation of the country uh, after slavery uh, ended, we have all manner of neo-slavery from the convict leasing system to uh, Jim Crow, uh, the present and ongoing era of mass incarceration, the uh, housing segregation that we've seen all across the the country, literal looting and plundering of black wealth, and of course, uh, the the deprivation of of freedoms and civil liberties and civil rights for the majority of the country's history. That is to say 77% of America's history, black folks have literally spent uh, in in a condition, a formal condition, of anything but a first-class citizen as in being second-class citizens as a consequence of slavery. So there's an economic cost and price uh, to that, uh, but the moral cost, the psychic cost, the racial trauma embedded and inscribed on our genes is real and calculable. And another writer on this issue 20 years ago, uh, when when the issue had less prominence, Randall Robinson wrote a book calling it, the title was The Debt. And he, everything that you just described, he summed up as a debt. And I think you, you would agree with that. And I, I, I just want to check in with Randall Kennedy, the, 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 the notion of there being a debt, the notion of there being a wrong, the notion of there, of there being a, a setback for, for a part of the population as a result of slavery. You, you don't dispute that. You're, I, I, I assume. No, I don't dispute it. And by the way, I'm from South Carolina, too. I was born in 1954 in Columbia, South Carolina, when the Constitution of South Carolina decreed segregation. So and, and you know, um, that's right. We, we live in a society that has been saturated with racism and the scars of racism, the scars of racial violence, the scars of racial brutality are all about. So on that, we are in complete uh, agreement. Um, But there's more to be said. Uh, We live in a society that is scarred by all sorts of inequities and all sorts of depredations. I think of American Indians. I think of, you know, all sorts of people. Um, My folks were refugees from the Jim Crow South. My folks were probably, um, were, were, were probably enslaved. But for various reasons, for various reasons, a lot of hard work, a lot of luck, I'm doing pretty well. And the question is, right now, should our polity try to funnel resources to me 
as opposed to somebody, let's say, whose folks swam across the Rio Grande 10 years ago, or somebody whose folks are, you know, in need. Uh, and, and again, wh whatever the need is, I, I would be more, I would be, I would prefer our energies to be focused on addressing the problem of need as opposed to trying to address the problems of crimes in history. I, I'm, you know, the, the crimes of history are there. There's no two ways about it. It's a tragedy. I'm not sure it's a tragedy that we can ever catch up with, however. Hmm. Cornell, I heard that sigh and that hmm. What's your, what are you thinking? I think because Randall and I are both South Carolinians and uh, the other points of commonality, uh, his metaphor really struck me uh, in a very powerful way. Um, but in a way uh, that prompts some measure of disagreement. It, we're both from South Carolina. Uh, we're both graduates of Yale Law School. We both teach at Harvard. But our aberrational and somewhat um, exceptional professional trajectories don't take us away from the central founding harm of this country, point one. Point two, I think Randall is correct that there are a great many tragedies in this country, a great many uh, victims of America's uh, injustices, uh, certainly Native Americans, African Americans, uh, Japanese Americans, um, yeah, Latinos. Uh, the, the amount of racial and ethnic harm in this country is incalculable. That being said, America has already extended reparations to Japanese Americans interned uh, during World War II, already extended reparations to Native Americans, already extended reparations to uh, uh, indigenous people as in the loots in Alaska. There are numerous examples of this country extending reparations to a variety of victims. The question we have to ask ourselves is why do we mute and render silent the voices of our ancestors when it comes to reparations for black folk. In other words, when we articulate the need for reparations, the righteousness, the righteous call for reparations, somehow it's impractical. It's, uh, it, it is uh, found wanting on the scale of injustices in this country. The mere fact that we are exceptionalizing the debate about reparations when it comes to black folks speaks to the depth and breadth of systemic racism in this country. In other words, when it comes to, to black folks, the magnitude of the math debilitates the morality of the rationale. And that's quite simply not the case. We've done this with respect to other groups, and it can't be that we can't have rational, reasonable discussion and call for reparations uh, for black folk in the way that we've done for so many other groups in this country. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's jump right back into our discussion. I agree with you, Cornell, that an appreciable amount, maybe a considerable amount of the pushback against reparations has to do with racism. I mean, I think that there are a good many people who basically say with respect to black people, you know, shut up. What are you complaining about? 
I think that there's some people who would probably say that with respect to slavery, well, slavery was bad in certain ways, but at least it got you away from Africa. I mean, that, you know, that, that is part of the, of the discussion in our country. And so I, I, I agree with you that we have to keep an eye on the problem of racism. I think we have to keep an eye on some other things, too, though. Let's talk about administrative difficulties, especially if we're talking about cash payments to individuals. So one thing that concerns me, again, I'm, I'm from South Carolina. I think that my people were probably enslaved. But, you know, there were, there were free black people in the age of slavery. Uh, you know, what happens to them? There were um, black slave owners in the age of slavery. I mean, to what extent do we really want to, you know, get down in genealogies? What about black people who came to the United States after the age of slavery? Do we really want to, do, do, how, how much do we want to distinguish different sorts of black people? I'll, I'll stop there. I'd like to hear a response. I think you raise some hmm, uh, interesting questions with respect to the administration of cash payments. But let us know this. Let, let's start with the whole matter of uh, black folks who are the descendants of uh, free blacks versus enslaved um, Africans. Black folks who are the descendant of free blacks, those free Africans live beside enslaved Africans in the midst of a slaveocracy. Uh, thereafter, their ancestors lived in uh, the midst of Jim Crow, in the midst of segregated housing, in uh, the, mix, uh, and the midst of racial terrorism. So disaggregating the descendants of free blacks from others, I, I think, is somewhat difficult. But you have people like uh, William Darity who make the case that reparations can be extended to those who are the descendants of enslaved Africans, who at least have one such ancestor. The point being here is we have in this country reparatory schemes, reparations extended to people based upon them being related to uh, victims of the original harm. But in this instance, note this, Randall, that the original harm continues into the, into the present, point one. Point two, how is it that Germany can extend billions of dollars of reparations to the, the victims and descendants of the Holocaust, but the United States, this great superpower, can't get itself together in terms of the accounting to at least have a conversation, a commission on reparations? And so this whole matter of paralyzing the discussion as a consequence of our inability to conceive the mechanics of the administration and the accounting of the administration uh, should be a conceptual and analytic non-starter. The point being here is uh, we cannot become obsessed with the how such that we don't start with the why to proceed to figure out the how. L listen, I'm all with a commission. I'm all for discussion. After all, I'm, I'm you know, we're talking right now as we've talked right. in the past. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think that this should be off the table at all. And I'm glad that it is on the table so that we're discussing it. In the discussion, however, at some point, if we're talking about, you know, allocating funds, if we're talking about allocating resources, 
administrative problems do arise and you know it's we, they they do have to be faced and i i guess i'm questioning whether some of these administrative problems are so difficult and so potentially divisive that they bring into question you know whether they're worth it and then finally again i'd like to hear your response i think at present we have many scandals in america we have this rich country in which there are um people in you know all over the country who are um suffering they 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 are needy and what i'm saying is you know you're saying well let's take a look back and let's you know give reparations to those who were in who or the descendants of the folks who were enslaved i'm saying let's take a look at everybody who is in need and address everybody who is in need no matter what the history of that need is and and so why isn't that the way to go why isn't distributive justice the way to go as opposed to reparative justice can i just get clarification rendell in in talking about everybody in need are you are you talking about african americans in need or everybody in need everybody including white people you know there 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 are plenty of white people in need and here i think we have to grapple with the complications of history i mean the fact that my folks were refugees from the jim crow south i have lived a better life a more enriched life than people who were privileged when my parents had to flee south carolina and that's just a, you know it's it's an ironic thing i'm not i'm not saying it was a you know that that they're having to flee was a good thing i but you know history's just full of paradoxes the fact of the matter is that the discipline the 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 incredible discipline that they uh embodied has helped me to live better than some of the people who did not have to undergo that discipline so again i don't need it what about the, you know what about these poor people i don't know white people in appalachia and other places native americans latino americans i don't care who you are if you are in need our country should try to do something to alleviate that need why isn't that a better way of going than trying to you know it but it it doesn't say anything about it doesn't say anything about the history of slavery that that sort of response I'm sorry. Absolutely. That would not say anything about the history of slavery. No, I don't think that's true. No, I don't think that's true because the history of slavery and the history of Jim Crow, the history of racial repression is why uh there are proportion, you know, in terms of proportions is why there's such a large proportion of African Americans who are in need. And and but but, but but for Randall, let, 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 might I note a couple of things? Sure. Because the very the very examples that you've lifted up, um, your incredible, compelling, inspiring family narrative, is really a testament to what I'm arguing. Here's what I'll, I know: 
When you say your family fled the Jim Crow South uh, for relative freedom uh, elsewhere in terms of the Great Migration, Right. Uh, as, as and not that long ago, by the way, let me just interrupt. We're not talking mm-hmm. about 100 years ago. My parents fled the Jim Crow South in the mid 19th, in the, in the, in the late 1950s. So we're not right. talking about a long time ago. Go on. I'm sorry. Yes. But your family narrative as a facet and a reflection of the Great Migration, as so well described by uh, Isabel Wilkerson. Mm-hmm. They did so, as did so many families, as a consequence of the second-class treatment that they, uh, the treatment they received as second-class citizens in states like South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, the Deep South, and the racial terrorism. And yeah. this racial terrorism is a reflection of what happened during slavery, which is to say the slave patrols, the night riders, that gave rise to Southern law enforcement and the Ku Klux Klan and the racial terrorism that literally chased black folks out of the South into the North. The point being here is the premise of reparations is literally a part of the genesis story of your family, point one. Point two, you cannot address that racially specific harm with just race neutral, neutral policy of prescriptions. The point being here is reparative justice is necessary along with distributive justice. We're not talking about pitting poor families in Appalachia and elsewhere against black folks who are suffering the consequences uh, of slavery and neo-slavery and its aftermath in the present. We're not pitting these groups against one another, point two. Point three, we're not pitting the past against the present. This whole notion that we have to achieve um, a problem-free democracy in the present in order to contemplate reparations for the future, uh, it, it doesn't make sense. This country addresses p- past harms every day, right? So in other words, in the wake of 9-11, 9-11 happened. There were victims of, terror- of, of terrorism in this country. Uh, the United States created a fund to not only support the victims of terrorism, but to support the airline industry that was affected by the act of terrorism. In other words, it happened, and this country responded to the past, a past event, in terms of, of making victims whole relative to the present and putting them in a position to face the future. When it comes to a $10 trillion wealth gap that came about largely as a consequence of the deprivation of liberty and the brutalization of black bodies, we have to address the past in the present in order to prepare us to march into the future. I agree with much of what you say. You know, you use the term political terrorism. That's right. Uh, My father uh, escaped, uh, escaped, escaped terrible injury and, and, and called my mother from Washington, D.C. and said, get the kids. We got to move. He was, it, it, it was terrorism. That's right. And it wasn't that long ago. One thing I might add, by the way, I mean, you know, we talk about, we talk about reparations for slavery. A long time ago, Boris Bitker made the argument uh, in the case for black reparations that, you know, uh, an, an argument for reparations would put uh, Jim Crow 
racial oppression at the center as opposed to slavery. Because if you put Jim Crow racial oppression as opposed to slavery at the center, uh, you know, there, there, there's still millions of people alive right now who suffered from Jim Crow oppression. But let me just say one last, let me just, so it's again, um, again, Cornell, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not your enemy, but I no, am, <laughs> but I am, I am concerned about, so for instance, you say we're not, you don't have to pit. No, you don't have to pit, but the fact of the matter is, the United States of America has lots of, you know, there, there, there are lots of things on the radar screen. And, you know, allocating resources, you, you, you can't do everything. There is going to be a politics around this. You're not going to be able to do all of the things that you would like to do. And so it seems to me that for a, a reformer, I think of myself as a reformer, I think of you as a reformer, you know, what are our priorities? If everything was open, if we didn't have to worry about a scarcity of attention, a scarcity of resources, then frankly, I probably wouldn't be on this show. But we do have to worry about a scarcity of resources, a scarcity of attention, a scarcity of political will. And so we do have to think about priorities. And it's, it's there that I suppose is our, probably our biggest difference. So Cornell and Randall, let me, let me ask a question that, that goes a little bit deeper then and maybe steps back at the same time to look at some of the principles involved. So you mentioned, uh, Cornell, the 9 uh, a 9-11 fund being established to, as you said, make people whole. And I, I look at, as we said earlier, you mentioned earlier, there have been other times when the U.S. government stepped up. And so after the internment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War, ultimately by the 1980s, um, the, uh, or actually even earlier than that, uh, the, the government realized the wrong had, that had been done and came up with a compensation program but it ended up paying people who had been interned $20,000 each in reparations. That did not make anybody whole. And in terms of the debt that we were talking about before, there's really no practical number that can be produced that can make anybody whole. So I'm wondering whether you actually are talking about the principle of, of having to pay something in order to say something about slavery, as opposed to the principle of help, helping people catch up with with payments. So can, can you take that on when you talk about what the purpose is? Yeah. Yes. So very well stated. And let me be clear. There is an attempt to make people, as in black people, the descendants of slaves, whole as in erasing the racial wealth gap or substantially closing it. There's an attempt at, at that, number one. Number two, the math becomes a means by which of sending a moral message. That is to say, we recognize not merely slavery, but the continu continuation of slavery from 1865, from the, from the end of, of slavery into the present. And number three, this is an attempt to help bring the country together and to take us forward. Let us know this. 
when it came to Japanese Americans interned in World War II, the payments made in the 80s were the second set of payments, right? In other words, there was an attempt at reparations before the payments made in the 80s. They were deemed to be insufficient. And then we had a second uh, set of payments. And again, those payments were insufficient because you, you, it's hard to compensate people for the loss of liberty. But when it comes to black folks, we have the loss of liberty, the brutalization of black bodies, the literally the little desecration of the aspirations, the stated aspirations of our Constitution. So an attempt must be made. And the last point here, note this, and this goes to Randall's point about um, priorities. Japanese Americans received some modicum of reparations in the 80s, the late 80s. The following year, Representative John Conyers introduced legislation to create a reparations commission. The Black Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus, supported Japanese Americans in getting reparations. They've supported other groups in getting reparations. So why is it when it comes to us, we have to put our case for reparations in a different administrative box, a different moral box, a different economic box, a different moral philosophical box. The point being here is it's not merely the, ra the racism of others. I would argue it's also this notion that we have to moderate our views. And last point, let's go back to Frederick Douglass, who moderated his positions on reparations back in the day. And he lived to say he regretted taking a more moderate position as opposed to giving black folks 40 acres and a mule. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Our mission is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to learn more. More debate when we return. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our debate. I want to go back to a phrase that came up. You used it, um, uh, Cornell, 40 acres and a mule. Mm -hmm. For people who don't know the story of where that phrase comes from, could, could one of you jump in and just catch people up on that and talk a little bit about what it implied at the time that uh, that the phrase was 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 basically coined in history. Sure. General William Sherman in the uh, latter days of the Civil War met with a group of African-American uh, leaders uh, in Georgia about the destitution of black folks, uh, along with the, the um, Secretary of War, and came up with this uh, a field order, Field Order 15, to allocate essentially 40 acres and a mule to um, um, black people along the coast of South Carolina uh, and Georgia. And that the realization of that uh, never came to be. I mean, there was some land distribution, significant amount of land distribution, but uh, black folks ultimately did not 
were not able to hold on to that land. Um, and certainly the promise of Field Order 15 was not realized. Economists have essentially taken that promise and extrapolated that in terms of what 40 acres of mule would represent today, and it would be well over a trillion dollars. But the point being here is what was represented in Field Order 15 was also represented in Thomas Jefferson's sentiment, namely that black folks were owed something. Uh, the founder of the Quakers uh, also uh, thought that black people were owed something. Frederick Douglass has said as much. There have been many people who essentially laid down the claim that black people deserve land, deserve something for the robbery of their freedom uh, and the desecration and brutalization of their bodies. I, I, I agree with the description. Um, it's actually worse, however, than uh, what Cornell said because um, the, the promise that was made to, to, the, to the black people uh, was actually torn up and Confederates got the land. The, and in fact, black people at the time said to the Union, we were with you. We were with you. And you're going you're gonna to abandon us and give the property to these people who you were fighting? And they were devastated by that, but that's exactly what happened. It was a terrible, it was a terrible abandonment of, of, of the freed people. Of course, it was just, it was just one of many abandonments of African Americans that has happened throughout, uh, American history. And, and where I think the message of the story, of the anecdote, of the situation is, is relevant to this discussion is that at the time of emancipation, whether you want to call it so-called or not, but emancipation, slavery being made illegal. There was a recognition that just being told, okay, go, without anything in a bank account, without any property, uh, was not a fair starting point. That to get going, that, that, the, that the free enslaved people would need a little capital to do something, to, to get going. And as you say, that was denied. But to me, I'm bringing it into the conversation to ask, was there a rep, a rep uh, in terms of timing, we've talked about too many years have passed, but at the time, was there a recognition that reparations were actually justified and called for in very much in the terms we're talking about now, which is we're going to deliver capital to the victims? There was a fight. There were some radical Republicans, most particularly Thaddeus Stevens, who recognized that the newly freed people would need, you know, would need more than mere freedom. There was a Confederate general who, when asked, you know, well, what's happened with uh, emancipation, who said, well, they've gotten, quote, nothing but freedom. In fact, uh, one of Eric Foner's wonderful books has that title, Nothing But Freedom. Um, There were people who recognized that there would be a need for some more, you know, reparationist type support. O.O. Howard, one of uh, one of mm-hmm. Sherman's generals, one of the, the founder of Howard University, uh, Howard University, was very much on this and 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 argued in favor of allocating resources for the freed people. So that was very much needed, as you know, and 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 that's been recognized over time. Again. Um, 
you know, that, that, that has been part of the freedom story, just like, frankly, affirmative action. I mean, affirmative action has a, certainly in its origins, had a very strong reparationist um, tinge to it, more than a tinge. That was, that was, its, that was its main propulsion. Um, so, you know, reparations warrants being in the discussion. Um, again, I think, though, there is the question at this point of, you know, what are your priorities? And I don't want to repeat myself in saying that as, as strong as the arguments for reparations are, um, in, in, in a society that has never been as diverse as it is now, in a society that's in the 21st century, you know, what do we need? I think we need a, 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 a reformist politics that tries to embrace everyone, that tries to make a potential beneficiary out of all of the, you know, many groups that constitute American society. You know, what, what... Randall, one thing I might note here is a couple, well, a couple of things. This notion that the diversity, the increasing diversity of the country mutes the ability to call for racially specific, um, remediation, reparations policy, um, I think may underestimate, uh, the capacity of this country, uh, the moral capacity of this country and the policy capacity of this country. Note this. So if in the wake of George Floyd's death, the Black Lives Matter movement, as reflected in 25 plus million Americans across 550 jurisdictions in this country, taking to the streets, the majority of these Black Lives Matter protests, in the majority of them, the majority of the people were not black. There was a multiracial, multi-ethnic response to a racially specific harm, namely the, the uh, police brutality in this country. The fact of the matter is that we need not compromise defining the problem in order to get support for addressing the problem. And so the point being is, if we were to address um, sexual violence in this country, it would be impossible for us to talk about it without recognizing the fact that women are most often the victims of sexual violence. Similarly, when it comes to talking about economic violence in this country, we have to speak about it with a certain racial specificity because of the racial violence literally inscribed, encoded in the Constitution uh, and that resonates, reverberates throughout American history into the present. The point being here is that we don't have to homogenize this discussion of racial reparations in terms of well, let's address all harms at once for all people in order to be able to talk about the racially specific harm visited upon black people. And again, I'm saying that as a friend, as a colleague, uh, by no means um, uh, an opponent or enemy. No, I understand you. And that you, you bring up an interesting point. You've put your finger on something that that touches me deeply. And frankly, you know, you, what you just said to me was, Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm shortchanging the capacities of the country. And maybe you're correct because frankly, in the last few years, um, I do, uh, the United States of America, uh, has gone down in my books. 
That's right. I have less esteem for my country because of what has happened in the last several years. I do have a, I have lowered expectations. Uh, I, I, I guess I really, I don't, uh, have as much faith in, uh, America, uh, as I used to. And frankly, I hope that you, I, I, I hope that you're right. I hope that you're right. I hope that I am wrong on this one. Cornell, do you, do you anticipate getting a check someday? I had a grandfather in terms of hoping to get a check. I had a grandfather by the name of the Reverend Pompey Lavallee who was born, a great-grandfather, who was born a slave. Um, he lived into the 40s. My great-grandmother made a quilt from his pants called the Bridges Cloth Quilt. My great-grandfather, who was a slave, slept under it as a man. I slept under the same quilt as a boy. My great-grandfather lived to see at least the beginning, or at least the um, uh, Smith versus Allwright. He, he, he lived to see at least some of the foundation being laid for the modern civil rights movement. I'd like to believe that I'm going to live to see um, checks being cut, but more importantly, repertory justice broadly conceived, broadly defined, realized in this country, and the racial wealth gap in this country bridge. And I can be accused of being an unrepentant optimist, but I would note here that the folks who have most advanced civil rights and social justice in this country, in the main, did not have a strong empirical or historical case for their optimism and their hope. But as I've long believed, you know, hope is not empirically demonstrated. It's morally chosen. I got to believe that. We have an interesting thing that's happening here. I mean, I guess you're more the optimist. I think that given the racial fractiousness, given the racial resentment, given this just the the the, the proliferation of racism in the United States, it's, that's one of the things that makes me think that the reparations campaign is is frankly doomed. I think that there is more hopefulness in the thinking of, let's say, an A. Philip Randolph or in the thinking of, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. in his later period. I mean, poor people's campaign, uh, you know, and frankly, you know, maybe that's unrealistic, too. But I, I, again, my sense is there's there's more of a chance of getting the big army that we're going to need for any major uh, resource allocation. I think there's a better chance of getting that big army with the big tent, with the not race specific, with the more universal language framework than with race specificity. That, that's, that's where I guess I'm basically, that's my bottom line, I suppose, at this moment. I hear that, but I, I, here's one thing I, I have to have, it's a question I have to pose. How is it that our generation, beneficiaries, children of affirmative action and the civil rights movement, 
How is it that we get to be less aspirational than our forebears? In other words, the case the, the, the case for optimism with respect to the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act would have to be more pessimistic than the case for reparations, right? So in other words, black, when black people would be, like we, we talk about uh, police brutality in 2021, but when we look at the lynching that raged through the better part of the 20th, 20th century, uh, you know, it, the point being here is just because I believe that, you know, we, we need to be hopeful, we need to be optimistic, does not mean that there's not a historical basis for believing that we can secure reparations, as in restitution, cash payments, based upon the successes of the past. And the, po- and the other part of this is, can anyone really credibly claim that we're going to erase the racial wealth gap in this country without an infusion of real capital, right? In other words, when black families, when, when white families have 10 times the wealth of black families and there's a $10 trillion wealth gap, how do we talk about that without talking about the racial specificity of that uh, in ways that appeal to the broader society, but also in ways that address the specificity and the surgical depth uh, and um, the surgical depth of the harm? It's a huge question. And Randall, I have to tell you that this is going to be your last chance to speak. It's really your concluding remarks. And then I'll come back to uh, to Cornell to have a concluding thought as well. But go for it, please. Okay, sure. I guess part of what's going on, we have you know competing aspirations. Um, the race-specific uh, campaign that Cornell has in mind, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of decency in it. Um, I, I, I just have my, you know, my questions about it that I've already ar- articulated. My aspiration, and I don't think it's a lesser aspiration, but I think it's somewhat different aspiration. My aspiration is for a society that addresses all people in need, um, regardless of the history that has brought them to that need. I think that's a, a larger framework. And I think it is a framework that might be able to um, avoid, to some extent, the racial fractiousness in our society. And I guess that's where I'll plant my flag for the moment. All right. Thank you. Cornell, <laughs> Well, last uh, word for you. I'll just simply say, as always, it's great being in conversation with uh, Randall Kennedy. I always learn a lot, and um, he makes me more aspirational. I'll simply note this, that racial specificity by no means suggests racial exclusivity, right? In other words, we can talk about the racial harms in our society in specific terms, in historically informed terms, in empirically informed terms uh, that are also aspirational in ways to bring people together and heal this country, point one. Point two we can do so in this moment. The point being here is when we look at reparations in the context of Japanese Americans uh, back in the 80s, uh, in the midst of a Reaganomic uh, era, the same, some of the, many of the problems that we are grappling with today, we grapple with them, and we nevertheless engage in a reparatory justice debate, issued checks, and recognize the harm. 
in this moment, in the midst of all that we are going through, we have the moral capacity, we have the economic capacity, we have the civic capacity as a country in the midst of this racial reckoning to address the past perpetuating the present and that may well haunt us in the future unless we issue checks, unless we engage in restitution, and most importantly, unless we recognize the harm that we visited upon black folks uh, in a way that really brings together the whole of the country. Well, Randall Kennedy and Cornell William Brooks, I just want to say um, I learned from listening to you, from listening to you agree and to listening to you disagree. And I'm sure the rest of the folks out there who have heard this conversation uh, have the same experience I did. So I want to thank both of you for taking part in this Intelligence Squared U.S. program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared, which was recorded on March 5th, 2021. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.